When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The scores are level. Ben Stokes, the man of the match in the World Cup final, has the chance here to level the series. 131 not out. 358 for nine. England need one run to win. Here is Cummins moving in now to bowl to Stokes. And Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four. And England have won the match. Leach rushes up to hug him. Stokes punches the air. And that is a miracle innings played by Ben Stokes. Echoes of Ian Botham here in 1981. He's 149 not out. There are Australians lying on the floor. They cannot believe they have lost this match. And England, by the narrowest of margins, have won a thrilling, incredible victory here at Headingley by one wicket, thanks to one of the great test innings from Ben Stokes. Well, what an extraordinary moment that was last summer. And it's incredible to think it's actually 10 months ago that Ben Stokes and Jack Leach put on that remarkable last wicket stand to win that test match at Headingley against Australia. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket podcast with me, Simon Hughes and Simon Mann. For many of you in the UK, the weather in April and May, well, it's been absolutely stunning. Hot sunshine, blue skies, glorious, barely any rain, perfect cricket weather, especially if you're a batsman. One problem, of course, there's been no cricket to play or watch apart from that match in Guernsey over the weekend that was seen by 84,000 people apparently on YouTube, yet we've been missing the sounds of the summer. So we thought we'd try to rectify that. This episode is dedicated to the sounds of cricket. And later we're going to hear from the blind cricket broadcaster, Dean Duplessis. He tells us how he uses sound to help him in the commentary box. My good old friend and mentor, Neil Manthorpe, he was the one who twisted my arm and said, come and join me in the commentary box. Neil actually has a great story where I was able to correct him uh, when Ajit Agarkar had been replaced by Saurav Ganguly. Uh, and Neil Manthorpe was still saying, in comes Agarkar, when I realized that it was a different bowler. It, it was amazing how you try and offer your services and you have the skepticism, and understandably so, even at times a bit of derision by commentators and by producers, because 
how is it that a person who's totally blind wants to come on live on radio and, and try and showcase their skills? And it's actually quite humbling for me to hear how their opinions change from being derisive, derogatory, scared, unsure to, you know, just this incredible amount of respect. And I mean, I never take that for granted, ever. Right, let's get going. Well, cricket's most fundamental sound, really. Leather on Willow, also, I suppose, known as the net, the staple for any batsman and bowlers these days. What were you like, yours, nets-wise? Did you think, oh, no, another morning in the nets, another day in the nets, or did you enjoy getting out there and practising? Well, it was it was awful for a bowler, uh, certainly, you know, 25 years ago, because uh, the bowlers never got a bat. So it was slave labour, charging into bowl, ball after ball, over after over, and obviously nothing to show for it except sore feet and blisters and so on. I mean, you could work on your game and, you know, try to control your outswingers and your inswingers and get your run-up sorted. But, of course, invariably most bowlers, to make themselves look a bit more impressive bowl over the front line, do a lot of no balling in the nets. So in a way, it isn't particularly good practice for your run up. But I think it, it just teaches discipline and also stamina because you have to keep going. As far as batting in the nets is concerned, I, I think I always found it very hard because net pitches were not often very good. The ball was nipping around. Uh, often the tail enders would only be facing each other. So the batsmen had gone off, the bowlers were tired, so they'd be bowling sort of medium paces, uh, fast bowlers bowling medium paces at the tail enders. So it wasn't particularly good practice. So we ended up just slogging and, uh, you know, it wasn't very uh, useful actually. And that, that, I suppose it re was reflected in our fairly poor performances with the bat in matches. Different sounds, of course, uh, the bat makes. And I, we were out the other day knocking around in Bushy Park, actually, on an artificial pitch, trying to get some rhythm back into our game. My kids, my two sons, were, were playing. And you can hear from these little clips here, a couple of times the ball was middled. And then see what happens uh, on the third ball here. I'll see if you can guess. What am I... Oh, I don't need to guess, Yoz. I know you dropped it, obviously. Yeah, I dropped it. The one chance <laughs> that Callum, my older son, had of a wicket was rejected by my butterfingers. How did that go down then for the rest of the day? <laughs> it's it's kind of weird, actually, that we haven't really been able to get into the nets uh, too often recently, obviously, because of the, the, the COVID-19 regulations. So back sort of playing out in the middle, you need a lot of balls because uh, unless you've got seven or eight fielders, the ball goes a long way and you have to then go running around on your bike to, to pick all the balls up before you can can carry on. So it's a bit of a sort of laborious process, but any cricket is better than no cricket. And it looks as though we're going to get some international cricket this summer. It might even get some county cricket as well, some promising signs there. How big an issue will it be for West Indies, England and Pakistan that they're essentially they're just going to go from net practice, possibly a bit of middle practice, into a, into a test match, into a test match series? I think it's pretty hard. We had a guy on this show a while ago when we were talking about mental health 
uh, an Aussie coach talking about the, the, the sort of inadequacies of nets in a way because you know it's an unrealistic environment you nick one and you don't know you're out you might be out it might not carry it you know it might be dropped like if I was at slip so you know you don't really know how you're playing in the nets obviously you can feel bat on ball but it's nothing like playing an actual match or playing an innings in a game and he was talking about this coach was talking about you know how you try and create more realistic scenarios in the nets and you know if batsman does nick it or misses one and gets bowled he should be out and come out of the nets to to make the sort of mental uh, rehearsals more realistic and actually that's the problem the nets themselves there, there isn't the mental reality of playing a ball then standing back for sort of 25 30 seconds then taking guard again facing the same bowler uh, for six balls in a row so maybe that's the approach that these teams these visiting teams will have to take is trying to apply themselves in the nets as they would in a match so it looks as though we're going to get some red ball and white ball international cricket this summer do they sound the same off the bat the red and the white ball they don't actually. It's, it's kind of weird, and and then there's also the pink ball as well, which sounds different. I think the 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 red ball makes a, a much richer sound, a deeper sound on the bat, and I think that's because it's more often natural leather with just a varnish over the top. Whereas to get the colour of a white or a pink ball, they have to put a layer of resin over the top of the leather, and that seems to make a much more clicky sort of sound, a crisper sound in a way. And actually, the ball seems to fly off the bat with a white or a pink ball more than it does against the red one Uh, and of course there is a difference also between an old ball and a new ball there's that really clicky sort of sound that a new ball makes really crisp and a dull thud when the ball's old and 70 overs 70 overs old which makes it better for the bowlers in a way because the ball doesn't sail to the boundary quite as quickly as it does against the new ball do you know i reckon this has got to be one of those pleasing sounds in cricket Well, that's the sound that says cricket is about to begin. The Lord's Bell, Yoza. Have you always had your whites on when it's time to go, when the Lord's Bell rings? Or, you know, you haven't got your boots on or your boots still in your bag or probably still at home in your case? (laughs) Yeah, there's all those probably uh, were, 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 were true at certain times. Uh, it was the job of the twelfth man actually to to keep his eye out and ear out, uh, standing on the balcony listening out for the for the five minute bell, and then to report back to the captain and the players getting ready. Usually bowlers doing up their boots at the time uh, just before uh, they get they get out there. And it, it, it's it's a time I suppose when it, it's a good cue to to really switch on actually because before that, especially if it's in the morning before play, you've been at the ground for probably an hour and a half or something, you've done various warm-ups and looseners and uh, thoughts about the game, done your own little bits of preparation, and then that five-minute bell is the time to really switch on, and it might just be a last word from the captain before you head out onto the field. A lot of players are superstitious and like being last out. Uh, I was just last out because I wasn't ready. Uh, In fact, Phil Edmonds was the guy who liked being last out the most, and he always used to leave the wrestling last and say, well... I suppose I'm going to bowl immaculately again today. And quite often he did. 
it's nice actually that the MCC now have a a, a policy where they get famous ex-players, ex-test players to ring the bell, especially on a test match. And they've started also introducing something which the Cricketer magazine uh, initiated, which is to get volunteers, nominated volunteers, people who are real stalwarts of the game, the amateur game. They have the pleasure of once a a season ringing the Lord's bell, that five-minute bell. But uh, who knows when we'll hear it this year. Well, that's right. I mean, there is the prospect, the possibility of no cricket at Lord's at all. Well, certainly it's not going to be any international cricket at Lord's uh, this summer. It very much depends on what happens with the, the county game. There's talk of a, of a regional competition, a regional championship competition, which I actually had advocated about six weeks ago in a, in a WhatsApp message to Vic Marks. Said, this is a great idea if we just have a limited season. It's a way of salvaging the, the county season and then we can have a, a final and we can then have a champion county. It'd be a, you know, a great opportunity to keep the championship going. And also, I think the players... They need that focus as well. It's no good just having first-class cricket for the sake of it. I think there's got to be a, a competition to win. And I, I think you know having a champion county from this season would be fantastic, even though it's in different circumstances. It's not first and second division. But it would be great to have it. I think, really worth doing at the end of the season, if possible. It's a total misjudgment there by Ian Bow. Oh. Bowled him. Well, that's the weirdest dismissal I think I've seen in cricket in a long, long time. As a bowler, Yoz, is bowling a batsman the most satisfying form of dismissal? Yeah, I think it is. You don't want the batsman to leave the ball, as uh, a couple of these uh, incidents we played were. Uh, You want to actually genuinely beat the bat and take the stump out, ideally. Uh, I've only ever achieved that about two or three times. I I suppose the only time you... Set the stump spinning out the ground. Yes, as opposed to actually bowling someone, exactly. But um, I I, I loved... um, the times when Jimmy Anderson uh, completely deceived batsmen with two outswingers and then an inswing. I remember he did it once to Brendan McCullum at Trent Bridge, and I remember he also did it to Saurabh Ganguly brilliantly at Lords with two swingers went across him and then one that he left and it nipped back and, and took out his off stump. Uh, that is a, a wonderful feeling, and it's got that really satisfying sound as well if you manage to extract the stump. He's got that catapulting sort of sound of the stump coming out of the ground, which he's even better now when the stump mics are fixed to it and the stump cameras and all the kind of wiring all kind of explodes out of the ground as well. From a batsman's point of view, uh, there's that that little tiny delay, isn't there, Mm. when you've just missed the ball and you're just waiting for what they call the death rattle. And you're praying, you know, that's it's almost as if it happens in slow motion. Yeah. You're just praying in that nanosecond that you're not going to hear the death rattle. But probably uh, you and I and me more than you have heard it quite often. Well, there's that weird feeling actually sometimes when you've missed the ball, when you think you're about to hear it and you don't. You think, well, what's happened there? Has the ball gone through the stumps or something? Because I, I was sure that's going to bowl me. I think the one thing I would say about being bowled is that at least you know you're definitely out. I always used to think that the worst, the most frustrating dismissal in cricket, strangely, was not being bowled, although you have been totally defeated by the bowler. The worst dismissal was 
LBW because it was just in the opinion of someone else. It wasn't categorical. I mean, these days, of course, if you apply DRS, then you could say it's a you know the batsmen have much less to complain about. But you know, if if you're given out LBW, especially if you know you've nicked it or you you know you're pretty sure it's going down the leg side, you're hit outside the line, or you you know you feel you've got yourself lined up and you don't feel the umpire is especially in club cricket not necessarily that good. I mean, you know, people sometimes have to umpire their own teams, for example. Uh, so I always used to find LBW was the most uh, frustrating way of being out. Uh, and, and I think bold second. That didn't go as well. And then five times on that occasion. What sort of an appealer were you? Were you a, a vehement appealer or would, would you just hold back sometimes? Did you give it the full, the full roar? I think it depended whether it was, uh, A, a person I didn't like much, in which case there's that sort of extra bit of joy and elation when you feel you've you've got beaten the bat. And also, uh, a little bit depending on whether you felt, uh, well, this is a very personal thing for me, whether you felt you deserved to beat the bat. Uh, there were times when the ball shot along the ground and it wasn't really you, it was just the pitch, and I didn't really appeal. I almost sort of apologised when I was appealing whereas if you did a brilliant bit of bowling as I was saying before like Jimmy Anderson where you've beaten the bat a couple of times with an outswing and then you've produced the inswinger which the batsman didn't read wrapped him on the pads right in front I mean that is exciting your own excitement comes through then in your appeal and so it is much more uh, vehement it doesn't necessarily win the argument because there, there are some umpires that, that just, well, it's certainly in the past, who, who were just, unless you were standing right on your stumps, right in front of middle and the ball hit you on the ankle, they wouldn't give you out. They wouldn't give the, the batsman out. So uh, it, it didn't necessarily work being uh, having a brilliant appeal. But in fact, I remember uh, Mike Proctor, you know, the fantastic all-rounder from South Africa who played a lot for Gloucestershire, he had the most incredible appeal. And I just saw umpires uh, almost wilt in the, in the wake of his sort of explosion of shouting and yelling and persuading. And, and they'd give it out. They almost sort of found their finger going up even when they didn't really mean to. Is there an art to appealing, do you think? I mean, is there... A, if you're a canny, in the old days, of course, if you're canny, you... you do things like you appeal and you go, oh, no, you don't give that one ump. He's not quite out, is it? It's, he's just, it's just hit him outside the lines. You're, you know, things like that. You're sort of cajoling the umpire. You're becoming the, the umpire's friend almost. And then when you're absolutely convinced, you, you know, there's, there's almost a, a connection with the umpire. You, you, you've sort of got him on your side. Yeah, I mean, it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. I mean, nowadays, and we, we heard from Ian Gould, didn't we, on, on one of these podcasts recently, that they've almost been educated by Hawkeye and the decision review system. So now they have a, a much clearer idea, certainly the professional umpires, of what is out and what isn't. Uh, they've seen that the geometry, you know, the mathematics, the lines on the screen showing that these balls are hitting or missing and I think umpiring generally is a lot better I mean it used to just be guesswork and yes you know if you could win the umpire over and almost sort of promise him a beer at the end of the day you might get a few extra wickets Uh, but it's funny isn't it because it's such a sort of distinctive thing for cricket appealing it's something that you don't really get or didn't get in other sports it started in the 1740s when the laws were brought in and LBW wasn't actually one of the first laws uh, that it came in sort of 20 years later but batsmen started using their legs to stop the ball from hitting the stumps that made the bowlers go well how's that 
And in the end, it became written into the laws that technically you have to appeal for every wicket. Do, do you think we? Do you think it needs to be there though? I mean, if an umpire just decides that's yeah, you know, if, if that's out, it's out. You just you just raise your finger, even if no one no one appeals. Uh, Mark Selby, I saw a tweet from him the other day saying that when Viv made his three hundred for for Somerset against Warwickshire. He was out LBW early on, and AA Jones was the umpire, and, and he said no one appealed. You think, well, he, he was out. Why not just give it out? It's a it's a strange one. I mean, it's you know, it's something like football, for example. Okay, players do appeal for a penalty, but you don't have to appeal for a penalty for the referee to point to the spot. So it, it, it's funny, isn't it, how it's developed over the years? But especially with someone like DRS now, do we actually? This is a bit left field, I know, but do we actually need an appeal, or is it just part of the theatre and the tradition of the game? Actually, it's it's got it's it's an exciting bit of the game, isn't it? I think that when the appeal goes up and everyone's waiting, everyone focuses on the umpire. You know, a bit like that. It's not an LBW appeal, but a bit like the uh, Kasprovich caught down the leg side at Edgbaston in two thousand and three. That sense of you know the ball flicking past the batsman, catch taken, and suddenly the camera focusing on Billy Bowden. What was he going to do? Was he going to raise the finger or not? So I suppose it adds to the, the theatre and drama of the game. Well, actually, I mean, if you couldn't appeal, Stuart Broad's game would be massively diminished, wouldn't it? <laughs> because he's got a whole range of them, from the sort of nodding, kind of almost as if I know this is out, you don't even have to appeal, to the, 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 the sort of enraged, triffid, kind of massive waving of arms and legs, a double and even triple appeal, and still the umpire's not giving it out. So, I mean, that adds quite a lot to the theatre of the game. And so does this. I have to say, one of my favourite things, absolute favourite things on a cricket field, unless, of course, I'm directly involved, is a comedy run-out. Especially, my absolute total favourite, my 100% favourite, is when both batsmen are competing to get to the same end at the same time, as if it's some sort of private competition uh, to stay in. There was an amazing moment in the World Under-19 final in South Africa early this year when India's Dhruv Drural was run out and his partner, Atava Ankolakar was stretching for the line exactly the same time. They actually had to use the third umpire to adjudicate who was out. It actually makes a fantastic photo. It's a bit like watching the end of a, a hundred meters race or a, or a horse race where you need the you know the, the tape at the end just to see who who got there first. And you know it's happened it happens a lot in cricket. I mean something similar happened to Alex Stewart and Mike Atherton in India, third test in in 1993. Great run out. Cock-ups. There's, there's nothing quite like it unless you're involved. I mentioned Mike Atherton there. Of course, he, he was famously run out for, for 99 in a Lord's Test match. Missed out on getting on the Lord's honours board. Slipped. Going for a third. Slipped. Sent back by Mike Gatting. Yeah, and that, that was really... A tragic moment actually for Athers because he played so well and it was a, a, a seminal moment in his career to get 100 at Laws, but as it is for everyone. And Mike Gatting just turned like a, a QE2 coming back for the third, sent Atherton back. He had to try and uh, retrace his steps. He slipped in mid pitch and he ends up sort of almost grovelling, almost swimming to try and get back in and fails to beat Merv Hughes' throw and his run out for 99. I mean, what a sickening feeling that must uh, leave the batsman. Of course, it, 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 uh, it's not very good if you're, if you're the culprit 
and then you you get out. Well, the, the one thing you don't do if you're the culprit is get out soon afterwards because the the batsman who you've run out is absolutely fuming. I've got a good example of that actually. Um, there was one time when Mike Brearley was playing for Middlesex and he was England captain at the time and it was at Lords and he was batting you know quite nicely. Roland Butcher, who was a terrible caller, came in number four and after about four balls. Uh, called Brearley for a run, sent him back. He was run out, and he'd been batting really well, uh, so he was sort of stormed off, came back into the dressing room, absolutely fuming. And Brearley was normally a very placid person, but, you know, when he got angry, he could really lose it totally. And he was already... Steam was already coming out of his ears. Two balls later, Butcher then runs out the next batsman, Clive Radley. Brearley's standing in the dressing room in his pads and his gloves, still there, still fuming about him being run out himself, storms onto the balcony at Lord's, over the top of all the members, and shouts right across the the ground, the expletive that you don't say, begins with C and ends in T, and he just shouted, You! Butch! With that expletive in the middle. <laughs> it was. I mean, we had to kind of laugh in the end, because, you know, it was, it was such a, such a cock-up. Yeah, what what's it like in the dressing room after a run out? I mean, I suppose as a batsman, what you don't do is you just say you stay in for as long as possible. So the the steam that's coming out of the other batsman's ears, that you've sawn off at the other end, it's sort of it's dissipated by the time you you get back. At least you can stretch it out to the next interval, the lunch or tea interval, or even the the close of play. Have you? Can you remember any sort of simmering resentments after runouts, or do you know everyone in the end just accept that it's sort of part of the game? That probably if you've done it once, someone will will have done it to you once as well. No, I mean it, it's it does depend on the character, but you know when you need to duck as the person comes in uh, because the bat is going to arrive before they do. And actually once, I remember somebody getting uh, Mike Gatting run out and he, he, he was absolutely furious. And he was so cross, uh, as he came to the Lord's dressing room, he shoved his hand against the door furiously and put his hand through one of the glass panes, cut his hand really badly and had to go to hospital. <laughs> It almost seems to me, actually, that cricket dressing rooms, you know, it'd be quite good to get mattresses and put them all against, against all the walls, almost like a, sort of, you know, like a padded dressing room, really, to d- deal with all the bat throwing and things that get thrown in, in a dressing room and the punches that sometimes uh, make contact with walls and doors. And, it would have prolonged like uh, Ben Stokes' career, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, he had that unfortunate incident in, in Barbados. Um, I'd say I'd, I love a, a great run-out cock. Of course, there was one, I think, you know, I, I can think of, uh, sort of that was really sad and, it, and it's sort of enduring, really, for South Africa, that 99 run-out at Edgbaston when they, they lost that. Well, they didn't lose. It ended up in a tie, but they lost their place in the, the World Cup final. Lance Klusner winning the game and then that, that run-out involving Alan Donald. There's something very sad about that. Not for Australia, of course. It's a fantastic moment for them. There's something very sad about it for them. And it's it sort of... It's hung over them for for quite a long time. I mean, you know that whole thing about the, the, talk about c words. Uh, you know the, the c word, the choking word that's sort of hung about them, and, and it persists in a way. Although you know they they bridle at it, but that I think that was a generally speaking run outs are quite funny. But that one was that that one wasn't. And it is the nearest that South Africa have got to winning the World Cup, isn't it? 
because they've never got to a final. So I th- it, it sort of adds to that ridiculous incident uh, in 1992 where the rain fell and suddenly they had to come back on the field to score 22 off one ball uh, to, to beat England in the semi and, and of course, uh, obviously perished in that one as well. So uh, poor old South Africa. Yeah, that 99 run out will certainly haunt them forever. Talking of rain... Now, come on, Yoz, be honest. Um, were you one of those players who opened his curtain in the morning, looked out and thought, great, it's raining today, no cricket, feet up all day? Uh, only when I was either bowling at Graham Hick or we had been playing 28 days in 31, which uh, a couple of times, a couple of months in the late 1980s, we did have 28 days play in 31. So uh, that that then does make you want to, to have a big black cloud over the top of the ground for about four days. But no, generally, actually, I mean, it, it's the thing about rain is... There's nothing to do, is there? I mean, you can muck around in the dressing room and you can play cards and bounce balls off tables and play corridor cricket and all that kind of thing. But it's pretty frustrating. And that kind of uh, irritation builds up. That pent-up frustration builds up and you're sat in the dressing room desperate to do something and you end up doing something stupid like punching someone or something or getting irritated. So, uh, and and when you get out there and play, I mean, the, game, the day goes so quickly. So I wasn't someone who, who liked the rain, no, generally. Some players did, though. I mean, I, I, again, it's about timing, isn't it? As you say, if you've been playing a lot, sometimes a, a day off is, is a welcome rest. I mean, Vic Marks tells the story of how Ian Botham, when he was captain of Somerset, persuaded the umpires at Leicester to, to call off a, a day's play at about midday or yeah. half past 11. And, you know, so, so they could all basically, so they could all go off and, and play golf. And they felt fairly she- sheepish about it because the umpires called the day's play off. I think then about 10 minutes later, the sun came out and, you know, they thought, we probably could be playing in a couple of hours. But of course, the, um- <laughs> the umpires have, had called it off. So, I mean, yeah, I suppose we all want to you know, knock off work from from time to time, especially if you're involved in something physical where the, the bones are aching, the muscles are, are aching. Uh, it, it's all, I think it's hard, well, actually, if you're, if you're a, not a professional cricketer. You, actually, the worst thing was when it came round to Saturday, it'd be nice all week, and then it rains on Saturday, so you miss your, your one, potentially one day of cricket for the week. Yeah, I always felt sorry for kids, actually, uh, uh, particularly kids who'd been at school all week and then they were looking forward to their match on a Saturday and then, you know, a little bit of rain and the groundsman say, oh no, you know, we can't play today, it's going to damage my lovely, beautiful beautifully mown turf and you know, hardly any cricket ended up being played for the whole of the two months of school summer term. I can tell you one ridiculous story about uh, county cricket where we were on a Sunday at Cheltenham, and it was during the Cheltenham Festival, which was a, is a beautiful event, and there's marquees all around the ground, and there's a real sort of festival feel about it. And it was raining very heavily that morning for a Sunday league match starting at 2 o'clock, and it was clear. The, the ground was waterlogged by 3, so we got into the tent and we started drinking pims and, and eating a bit of smoked salmon and stuff because that's what all the sponsors were enjoying, and they'd sort of invited us in. And suddenly at about 430 the rain stopped, hot sun came out, dried up the pitch, and suddenly the umpires announced we had to play a 10-over game. You've never seen so many terrible shots and dropped catches and awful balls in the history of cricket. 
What professionalism. What professionalism reigned in your days, yours. And, of course, you know what's going to happen. We've had this amazing weather, dry weather. The fields near me are biscuit brown already, and it's the start of June. As soon as they put some stumps in the ground, come July the 8th, England against West in his first test of the GS Bowl. If it does go ahead, and fingers crossed it will, you know what's going to happen, don't you? Oh, don't be such an old pessimist. (laughs) So the sounds of cricket are so evocative, but what's it like if you can only use sound to follow a cricket match? You can't use sight. Zimbabwean... Dean Duplessis, who presents the Dean at Stumps Cricket Podcast, has been blind since birth, but he uses his acute awareness of sound to follow the game, and he's worked in both the radio and television commentary boxes. One of the things that are incredibly important for me are good effects mics. So, uh, you know, be it the sound of the crowd, because the crowd obviously engage with, with you a lot when you're in the commentary box, and especially with me. Uh, but another thing would be the use of the stump microphones. Uh, so sometimes they're pretty good, uh, and other times they're not so good. So if those stump microphones are working nicely for me, I then actually get the job done relatively nicely, because obviously, you know, you can hear the tap, tap, tap of the bat at the crease. And as the bowler runs away, you, when he gets to the crease, certain bowlers have their own little, I suppose, their little habits that they do. So um, others, some, some give a bit of a drag as they get to the crease in delivery. Others give a bit of a grunt. Um, and I'm told that that dragging sound that I hear is actually due to the length of the spikes on their boots, which is quite fascinating. Um, you know, so certain bowlers like Steve Harmison, when he got to the crease, he was actually for a big, big man. He actually approached the crease very quietly, as did Freddie Flintoff, whereas Mark Wood, when he approaches the crease, I understand that he's not as tall um, as, for example, a Flintoff or a Harmison. But the, the sound of Mark Wood bowling a delivery compared to the sound of an Andrew Flintoff is very different. So with Mark Wood, you hear that, that dragging sound. And because he puts everything into it and when he bowls, sometimes there's a bit of a grunt as well. So I would, I'm led to understand that there's a lot more um, body action versus he may not be as fluent as a Steve Harmison or as a, a Jofra Archer, maybe, for example, or even an, a Freddie Flintoff. And so the, these are the different sounds that bowlers make either by grunt or either by the way that they land with their feet at the crease that are pretty helpful to me. What can you do and not do as a commentator? I mean, I've been in the commentary box with you and you talk about the action as if you can see it. But what, what can you do and what can you not do? I, I, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be incredibly comfortable describing a ball by ball. In, in other words, something that you or, or Aggers would do, you know. So I wouldn't be too happy saying, in comes Jofra Archer from the Kirkstall lane and bowls to Smith. Smith goes back and across and works it away behind uh, Square on the onside and, and, works and, and sets off for a single. I wouldn't be too happy doing that because my stump mics will tell me that you'll hear the ball hit the bat. And sometimes I can tell where the ball goes... On the leg side, it's it's a bit more of a hollow sound as opposed to the off side, which is a definitely a sharper and more distinct crack. And, of course, you can hear the batsman saying, yeah, 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 you know, as they rotate the strike. Or sometimes you'll even hear them say, push for two. But I wouldn't be too comfortable being the anchor commentator. I'm a lot more comfortable giving you the color from a blind person's perspective. 
But I mean, I can read the game, and I, and I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I, I, I can read the game as well as a full Tufnell or any other one of your summarizers, um, you know, as to how the game's going. And I can, I can certainly provide and, and describe you with a picture that I'm sure 99.9% of listeners would be very happy with doing. So can't, I would say, I, I, I can't give you a ball-by-ball um, description as a anchor commentator. Can. I can, I can match anybody in terms of, of giving you a description as to how things will turn out and what I'm hearing batsmen are maybe struggling with at the crease or what bowlers aren't quite doing right as well. How are you able to do that? Explain how you're able to do it. So a lot of time from a batsman's perspective, when he's playing certain shots, so say, for example, he's wanting to drive through mid-off or mid-on, but he keeps finding the field. So he's playing these immaculately timed strokes, but he keeps finding the field. After a while, you hear a bit of a grunt of annoyance, you know, like a ah, something like that. Um, I know Alistair Cook, as patient as he was, sometimes when he wasn't getting the ball away, you would hear him do that. And, and it's the same as a bowler as well. So he's trying to be maybe getting the leg stump Yorker going to a tail ender, but it ends up being a leg stump full toss or ball that is just wasted down the leg side because his wrist positioning isn't quite right. And sometimes I can actually hear the bowler fall away, depending on the quality of the stump mic. I can hear the bowler fall away as it gets to the crease, you know, as it gets into that, that gather and then the, the delivery. You can hear him falling away at the crease. And, and also you'll hear the exclamation of annoyance when he knows that he's not getting the ball on target. You know, so and, and so then that, that then comes together quite nicely. So then you'll probably hear me say, yeah, he's becoming a bit frustrated now is Joe Root because he's played a couple of very, very good strokes. And yes, probably I'll remember what you said, you know, uh, one particular, the Joe Root cover drive, which he's been playing quite nicely, but he's not piercing the gap. But then I'll say something like, you can now hear the frustration by Joe Root because he's playing that cover drive quite nicely, but he hasn't been able to pierce the field uh, and rotate the strike. Can you hear how well or otherwise a batsman times the ball? Yes, actually, and that's, that's quite bizarre how that works. So Because sometimes it can be misleading. Sometimes when a batsman does not mistime the ball, you can actually hear a very similar rifle crack sound, which will give you the impression that he has timed it. But it, it's a more duller crack versus a more firmer crack. You know, so when the ball is, especially the, the, the batsmen who love playing slog sweep shots over mid-wicket, uh, they, they're the ones who sometimes can confuse you a bit. Because if they get a top edge, but the ball still goes high up in the air, sometimes it does still make quite a loud sound. Versus a ball that is hit the middle of the bat. You know, it's, it's um, well, if I'll, if I'll make the sound personally, the, 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 the sound that, that is the, the top edge that goes nowhere is more of a sound. But then the one that goes over deep square leg, that's more of a so, but if I, you know, you can definitely hear the two sounds of the bat versus the, the top edge or the bottom or the toe end of the bat versus the middle of the bat. At what age did you realise you had the ability to use sound so effectively and help you with your, your love of cricket? Oh, wow, that's a very good question. I started following cricket at the age of 14, um, but I didn't really, I mean, I used to hear the sounds, but it didn't really um, occur 
I don't think, although my mates at school tell me differently. They, they say that I was able to do that. But I would say from the age of about 17, I was beginning to realize, and even, for example, reverse sweeps. So when lots of batsmen play the reverse sweeps, lots of times the bat hits the ground, doesn't it, when the reverse sweep is played? Well, obviously, depending if you're trying to keep it down. That, of course, was helped by Andy Flower. As you know, Andy Flower uh, was one of the better players of reverse sweep still to this day in the world. I mean, these days people play sweep shots on the offside and they go miles for six. But from a consistency uh, perspective, Andy Flower was undoubtedly one of the better players of the reverse sweep. So that used to help me uh, hugely as well. So I'd say from the age of about 17, I was beginning to realize that I can actually tell you that this is a slower ball. And I can tell you when it's a Yorker because of how the bat, um, how the batsman has to bring the bat down on the ball a bit quicker. And you can hear that there's a, like a, like a thud, a dull thud when, uh, when the bat hits the ball, when a Yorker is being bowled versus a sharper crack when the ball is just back of a length and the batsman defends it invariably out towards, you know, your gully region or, or in that particular area. But when obviously when the batsman's bowling you a Yorker, you're trying to hit the ball back past the bowler down the ground, which is where that more muffled sound would come from. What about your experience in the commentary box? Tell me about that. What, what, what have you done over the years? Um, well, I, I made my debut in rather bizarre circumstances in 2001. It was a, um, a series between... Zimbabwe, India and the West Indies at Harare Sports Club and my good old friend and mentor Neil Manthorpe, he was the one who twisted my arm and said, come and join me in the commentary box. Neil actually has a great story that he could tell you way better than I can, uh, where I was able to correct him uh, when Ajit Agarkar had been replaced by Saurav Ganguly uh, and Neil Manthorpe was still saying, in comes Agarkar when I realised that it was a different bowler. Uh, but Neil tells it way better than, than I do. I don't Because I was so incredibly nervous, I don't remember it as well as what Neil does. So, but, but that was very special for me, uh, making my debut. Um, I've also done some television work, which is vastly different to radio work. You have a director constantly talking to you, and you have to really dig deep and use your imagination as a blind person because, you remember, you're not talking to a radio audience. You're talking to a television audience. And that was very special. Mike Hazeman was the one who coaxed me into doing that. That was in 2003. I've been to Bangladesh, uh, unfortunately, only once, but that was a real experience for me, commentating in, in Bangladesh and, you know, just being able to showcase my skills to millions of, of uh, fanatical supporters. That was back in 2009. It was amazing how you try and offer your services and you had the scepticism, and understandably so, even at times a bit of derision by by commentators and by producers, because how is it that a person who's totally blind wants to come in live on radio and, and try and showcase their skills? And it's actually quite humbling for me to hear how their opinions change from being derisive, derogatory, scared, unsure to, you know, just this incredible amount of respect. And I mean, I never take that for granted ever. What about viewers and listeners? What sort of feedback have you had from them? There was there was a news reporter here in Zimbabwe who once phoned me and, because I used to wear dark glasses uh, when I went on air. It was, it was a decision that was made by the producer and the director of the television broadcast to say that I should wear dark glasses. I'm not entirely sure why, but I did that. Uh, there was a television reporter who phoned me and who said, we think that you are conning people by wearing the dark glasses because you really can't see. 
which then obviously got pretty heated and um you know so that that was only real feed negative feedback that i've had but generally speaking listeners and viewers have really done a lot of advocating for me and they've asked why is it that dean has never been able to to be given a fair chance to prove himself you know he's always a guest commentator or uh something of such but i guess it it boils down to getting a fair chance to prove myself and if the if after a full season of of doing analyzing summarizing and commentating if you don't like what i've given you as a director or producer you're more than welcome to to tell me to to head off you know um but i don't really feel that that opportunity has come my way and that sentiment has been or should i say i i echo the sentiment of the viewer and the listener you know to be given a fair chance and if they don't like what they've done what i've done after a full season you you're more than welcome to tell me so what's your favorite sound let me tell you one of the most beautiful sounds to listen to and this only happens in england and that is just the beautiful that there's a a very special drone you know the the buzz of a test ground and, and there's a special sound that that you hear you know like this this hum or this buzz and this drone that to me sounds like 16,000 20,000 or even 1,000 people who are content who momentarily left their their troubles of work or family or whatever behind them and they just relaxed in the sunshine you know maybe perhaps having a having a pint and listening to the sounds that can only be found in England no other country no other test venue will you hear that that atmosphere is beautiful you know the west indies they have their own unique sounds the horns the conches the music the drums australia they they have a lot of chanting that happens and 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 things like that india also unfortunately the test the test crowds aren't that impressive anymore in india which is incredibly sad because i think t20 cricket has poisoned uh, the beautiful game of test cricket but those are the sounds just that 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 content of of i'm watching a bit of test cricket with my my family or a mate and there's a whole bunch of people who are just watching and observing and you know being a part of the action by not necessarily making huge amounts of noise and that is a time and a place as well when ben stokes was steering england to that famous win over australia the 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 crowd getting behind stokes the awe it, you know that you could hear in the in, in the way that they cheered it, it wasn't just a raucous cheer of a t20 match you could hear the cheering of the crowd was tinged by awe and admiration and respect and as if to say wow we ben stokes what are you about to do for us 357 for 9 two to win the crowd goes quiet again cummins moves in and bowls to leach and leach fends it away into the onside they go through for a quick single and they get it scores a level england cannot lose australia cannot win the ashes today but can england now get the run they need to level this series ben stokes is back on strike that is jack leach's first run in a partnership of 72 and what a valuable run the scores are level here is cummins moving in now to bowl to stokes and stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and england have won the match leach rushes up to hug him stokes punches the air and that is a miracle innings played by ben stokes echoes of ian botham here in 1981 He's 149 not out. There are Australians lying on the floor. They cannot believe they have lost this match. I think one thing that will live in my memory from that amazing day at Headingley was the sound of the crowd, the the unfettered joy 
that guttural sound that came deep within the spectators there. They were seeing something they'd never seen before. They were having the day of their lives at the cricket. The, the noise of the crowd was absolutely remarkable. Of course, this summer, we are not going to have that. We are going to have cricket played, hopefully, but no crowds at all. It will be a, a very strange atmosphere for the players to play in. They have some experience of it, of course, because most of them, England players, some of the England players and the Pakistan players, have played in the UAE, where the crowds have been very small, if not non-existent. So it's going to be strange for the players being at the ground. It's also probably going to be strange for the television viewers as well and the radio listeners. I can quite see what D- Dean was saying, actually, about the, the, the range of sounds that you get uh, as a blind person when you're at a cricket match and that the blind uh, that a blind person could enjoy and really be exhilarated by that Stokes uh, performance just by sensing the reactions of other people around them. Uh, in fact, I, we used to have uh, at Middlesex every year, we used to have a visit from some blind telephonists from Barclays Bank, and they used to sit in the pavilion, uh, it's sort of up on the top tier, and uh, one of the players would be asked to go and sit with them and, and chat to them about the game and tell them what was happening. And I found that often they didn't need to be told because mm. they could tell from the sounds of the players, from the oohs and ahs of bowlers and batsmen and fielders and obviously a few people watching around, they could tell exactly what had happened. And actually also what Dean was saying about the sounds of the, the bat on the ball, it does make a different sound. An edge makes a different sound from a middle, uh, hitting the ball in the middle sometimes a, a sort of clip off your toes makes a softer sound than a, a, a sort of bludgeoned pull or a crisp off drive or something like that. And I, I think the more you, you listen to those sounds, the more you can tell the difference between them. The interesting challenge for the broadcasters this summer will be how to replace the sounds of the crowd uh, in, in the broadcast, because it's so important. It's such a, an important accompaniment to create the atmosphere that, that we heard in that Headingley clip, for instance. So I'm, what they might do is try and turn up the stump mics a bit more. And I'm not suggesting, you know, hear more, hearing more sledging or anything, but more just to, to experience the, the dramatic sounds that the game produces. And, you know, here's an example, for instance, of... Brett Lee bowling a 100-mile-an-hour delivery, and I like that the sounds of the run-up and the, the, the studs hitting the crease as much as the ball fizzing past the bat. 160Ks, that is 100 miles an hour. One six one. it is getting faster. Can you believe it? Now, the world record... Is 161.8. So that little clip was from 2005. So, you know, stump microphones have been improved quite a lot since then, much more sensitive. Uh, I'd like to hear more of those sounds uh, to try and really bring the drama of a fast ball to the TV viewer, which you know, will lack that sort of ooh and ah of people in the crowd in slight awe of a 90-mile-an-hour delivery. Do you think we'd just be grateful to get cricket back on? I, mean, I mentioned those 84,000 people that watched that match in Guernsey on, on YouTube. Well, do you think that will actually wear a bit thin? You know, to start with, everyone would be happy that we, we can see cricket again and international cricket and, and football as well, with you know, the Premier League and the Championship coming back and horse racing's already started, for example. Do you, do you think that that will wear thin after a while and it will become a sort of strange 
It's almost surreal experience. Um, I think we'll get used to it in the same way as we've got used to the two-metre rule going to the supermarket. And mm. uh, in a way, uh, it's all about the players, isn't it? And if they can focus on their game... And, and I must admit, I used to find that, that if I was playing in front of 12 people at Leicester or 20,000 people at Lords, it didn't matter. I was really mm. focusing on my game, trying to get the wickets that my team needed or do the bits of fielding or whatever. Uh, it, you know, if you really concentrate on the ball, you don't notice the lack of a crowd nearly as much. Uh, I think they'll get used to it, the players, and the TV coverage will be focused on the middle and replays and did you know various bits of data, scorecards and stuff. So in a way, you know, they'll make sure they don't show the empty stands too much. There'll be an art to how they broadcast it. If the games are good, they'll be enjoyable. Well, those have been the, the sounds of cricket, the sounds of the summer. We hope we're going to actually see some cricket in the not-too-distant future, the 8th of July. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Analyst Inside Cricket. We'll be back with more for you in a very short time. But for now, it's goodbye. And thank you very much for listening. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.